You're listening to All The Best. I'm Helena Baroni-Peters. As a child, I viewed my grandparents as perpetually old. Imagining them young and in love was inconceivable and made me kind of queasy. At Christmas, they'd often tell the same stories over and over about their life in Italy and their experiences immigrating to Australia. To be honest, I was often more caught up with how much lasagna Nonna was cooking for dinner or how many gnocchi my cousin could shove in his mouth at once without choking. It's only as I've grown up that I've come to understand how important it was for my grandparents to share these stories with us. And as an adult, I've come to appreciate the weight of these experiences. To view my grandparents as people in their own right, and not just perpetually old. We can never really understand how somebody wishes to be seen and understood in the world unless we listen. In our first story, Lee explores the value of end-of-life biographies and how they come to be stories treasured by loved ones. There you are. Hi. Hi, Micah. Hey, your hair's grown. This Zoom call has been a long time coming, and it might be the last time that Annie and Michael meet. It marks their final session together. Annie reckons it's about the eighth or ninth. Lee. Lee. <laughs> and the purpose of these meetings? To record Michael's life story, his biography. It's not just any biography, though. It's an end-of-life biography. Michael's in his late 60s now and was initially placed into palliative care in early 2020 because of his declining health. I won't go into the details. But what I will tell you is that Michael is a resilient kind of guy. He's a bit of a larrikin, and in Annie's words... Once you've met him, it's impossible to unmeet him. He He's really one out of the box. He spent his childhood in the Melbourne Orphanage in Brighton, and in this final recorded session for his biography, which I got to sit in on, he shared with us some of his best memories of growing up in this institution. But this story is as much about Annie as it is about Michael. Annie has been a volunteer palliative biographer for the past two years with Eastern Palliative Care. She's responsible for meeting with people who have a life-limiting or terminal illness. Sometimes they're given just a few months to live. And when she meets with them, the most important part of her job is to listen, often for hours at a time, while they reflect on the time that they've had, their achievements, disappointments, and lessons they've learned along the way. If the client stays in relatively good health, she'll continue to meet with them, typically six to eight times, to get their story in full. When all the sessions are complete, she collates their memories with pictures from the client's lives, and then she presents it to them and their family in a digital format and as a hardcover book. Now I want to take you back to where I met Annie, at her peaceful home in the basin, a sleepy suburb nestled at the foothills of the Dandenong Ranges. Death has always been a hard topic for me to approach, something that wasn't really spoken about much in my family, even when we experienced that loss firsthand. I wanted to speak to people who do spend time thinking about that loss of life, what it all means, and explore how they reflect on the end stages of life. 
great. I'm just going to turn this off. And just does yeah. it tilt down a bit? Yeah, you can do. Um, after some initial fumbling with the mics, we got into the big questions. What first drew you to this role of being a palliative biographer? I love stories and I have always enjoyed listening to people's stories. And it occurred to me that people in palliative care are at a time in their life when they're reflecting upon their life and they have things that they want to to reflect upon and stories that they want to tell about what they've done. And so for me it seemed like such a natural fit to be able to help somebody at the same time as become involved in the stories that they're telling. Before she turned to the biography program, Annie spent two decades in a somewhat different profession, but helping vulnerable people has always been a central tenet to her work. So I was the principal of a school where all of the students had significant disabilities. There were about 70 students in the school and a lot of staff. We had fabulous staff-to-student ratio. But it was a very creative space where we could design curriculum and, and teaching and learning for the students that was really meaningful. We actually ended up creating a TV show with our students as the stars of that and that's going really strongly today. So it was a very creative space. It's immediately clear to me that Annie has a real passion for her new role. When Michael's face pops up on the screen, her eyes light up yeah, and she cool. spends the first few minutes of the call just having a good old chin wag. <laughs> stories to tell. I, you've always got stories to tell. You do. Hang on, I'll just pop that one. I am of the opinion that we are patient in things that we're passionate about. So let's take somebody who adores tinkering with their car and fixing it and they will have a lot of patience for that, whereas I personally wouldn't. But if I'm listening to somebody, I am very, very patient with that because it's often in the silences and the waiting that that person will say more to you. There's more to this biography program than first meets the eye. It has the obvious benefit of recording a person's history and giving their family something to remember them by. But Annie says the process of recording someone's stories can be very profound for the client as well, especially when dealing with the realities of poor health and the looming threat of death. A sort of catharsis, I guess. I believe they gain real validation about their life and the importance of, of, of any human life. It is not uncommon for someone to start a biography saying, oh, I don't have much of a story to tell. But, well, that's never the case. They, they do have a story and it's that validation that, wow, I do. And this story, it's incredibly important to me. It's my life and it will be important to those people around me as well for you as well you know sitting in uh you know having all these experiences with different clients that are i guess at different stages of their lives have you had any you know big learnings and lessons yes with every client without any doubt and one of the wonderful things about being a biographer is how much you learn well you're learning about the human condition but i'm learning practical things all the time i'm learning different parts of geography i'm learning about different trades i'm learning about different cultures and so when I am actually typing up what they have said I'm forever googling different things that they've said and learning. I think towards the end of life people are more likely to be quite honest about their life. You entering someone's 
life at a time where they're perhaps more than any other time prepared to, to talk. They know that time is short. And there may be some things that haven't been reconciled or that, they're, that are playing upon their mind. After wrapping up my chat with Annie, it was just about time to jump onto Zoom to speak with Michael, who was dialing in from his house in Baronia. He said he hadn't been feeling so flash lately. Um, yeah, so actually you're looking well. Just yeah, but they've been feeling that well, eh? Haven't you? No, yeah. no, no. But Michael perks up a bit when it's time to tell one of his stories to me and Annie. He decided to go with the one about when he tried to escape from the orphanage as a five or six-year-old to see his dad, who used to come visit him from time to time. Yeah, so this night, you know, like, I, I, I planned it, you know, I, I just wanted to get away. I believed, you know, I should be with me dad. I was going to escape that night. He makes his plan known to the other kids at the orphanage and they say... They, they say, we want to come. And I said, but I'm going to... To, to my dad's place. They did let him take us out some weekends, and so I knew which way we sort of went out, so I knew general direction, I thought. <laughs> so I decided we'd um, we'd escape that night after we had our uh, dinner and they put us to bed, so we'd sneak out then. As I got up, to get all these other kids saying, we've got to come, and I'm so, saying, you just go back to bed. And they say, no, we're coming with you. <laughs> you know, we want to come too. Big <laughs> adventure, you know. For, so I said, all right, but you've got to be quiet and do as I tell you. With that, the toddlers set off on their quest into the outside world. And I snuck us out. Well, we have to walk across the big gravel driveway in front of the main building, you know. Here we are. You know, as little kids, they're still trying to talk, and I'm saying, shush up, shush up, we've got to get out, you know, trying to keep them quiet. It's just going on now, dusk. And I said, we've got to keep all together. So they make it out onto the main road without getting caught. And then... Turn left, and there's the milk bar. It had a couple of steps to climb up, and I said, well, we better get... Now you're all here... You better get some supplies. By supplies, Michael means some lollies for the journey ahead. It was a heist of sorts. They didn't have any money. They were toddlers. So Michael instructs a few others in the group to speedily pants some sweets and chockies while he distracted the shopkeeper. Had it all planned, I did. So <laughs> trying to block his view, probably knew what was happening, I don't know. Michael's asking the shopkeeper for directions, anything to keep him occupied. But as soon as the kids have stashed the goods, he tells the man... And I said, oh, we're all right. I've got to go now. I know where we're going. See ya. They get out, but the group can't rest on their laurels. The real challenge lies ahead. So they start walking. Started walking down this dark road. Well, they're eating into all the lollies as we're walking. Well, we kept walking down this long road and, you know... Some of them were starting to say, oh, look, we're tired, you know. Uh, and so we got down to Nepean Highway. Now, you know how busy that road is. Oh, my God. It was busy back then, too. And it was starting to drizzle. And you could hear the, and see the spray off the cars and the lights just whistling, speeding past on this Nepean Highway. 
the group grows weary as they start to get wet and tired, which understandably frustrates Michael. After all, he didn't want them to come in the first place. They ask if they can all turn back and go home. So I said, no, we told you, we've got to go. We're going to go down, go into my dad's place. He'll know what to do. He'll look after us all. Once I find my dad. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't have a clue where he was, really, right? Now we're getting a little wet now. And all the food's gone. (laughs) You've eaten it. (laughs) The complaints keep rolling in, but Michael tries to reassure them. They make another left turn. And I said, well, no, we've got to go this way. I know it's this way. So we walk right back down to Dendy Street. You know, and all these cars, you know, it was scary looking at these cars and it's dark. It's really dark now and cold. Oh, and they, 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 I got them crying and, and, and some of them saying, how far is it? How, how much further? By this time, oh, they, 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 they were really getting under me skin now. The group had reached a breaking point. Everyone just wanted to go back to the orphanage, and Michael again bemoans the kids' decision to come along in the first place. Now the children are angry, and Michael still has no idea where they are. Yeah, this is taking us hours. As we walk back down, we ended up in front of the orphanage now at the the main entrance. (laughs) We've walked (laughs) right around the block. With the failed mission resting on his shoulders, Michael walks the group back inside with the intention of continuing on solo to get to his dad, but they're quickly spotted and his plan is derailed. He owns up, confessing it was his idea, and is dutifully punished. The story doesn't really have a happy ending, but it's memorable, and it's a story about something that has defined Michael's life, for better or for worse. Michael was a great sport, and I'm pleased to say that at the time of recording, he was in good health. And hearing his reflections put me at ease. They made me feel more comfortable approaching the topic of death, and got me thinking about what kind of stories matter to me the most. They've never left me, those stories. A lot of people can't remember that far back, they say. They, they sort of block everything out. I found talking about it, well, that sort of it refreshed my memory on a lot of other things that were happening. Yeah, things that are, as day-to-day life situations you go through, you sort of, you forget your past, but you've got to remember where you come from. Like, that that's who, what made you who you are now, isn't it? That story was produced by Lee Robinson. You're listening to All the Best. I'm Helena Baroni-Peters. At All The Best, you can learn how to make audio documentaries, essays and fiction. If you have a story to tell, get in touch. Visit allthebestradio.com and send us your pitch. We'll pair you with one of our supervising producers to help make your story. Language can be hurtful to the disability community and sometimes in ways that might not be obvious. Hello, my name is Jay Marie Yetch. My pronouns are she, her. What else do I need to say? I have a disability. Um, Yeah, I'm a a queer disabled woman and I'm 25 years old. 
So right off the bat, Jay told me the hardest words for her to handle are, you're so inspirational. To me, when you say you're an inspiration, what you're saying is I have such a narrow view of people with disabilities that I don't think they could do what you're doing. I get it a lot when I'm like, oh, yes, I go to uni or graduated uni and people are like, oh, such an inspiration. Okay, but so many of us do that every day. And when I try and have those conversations of, hang on, this is why it's frustrating, I'm like, oh, the response is always, oh, yeah, but I wouldn't say that about an able-bodied person who got a degree. And I say, no, you wouldn't. You'd say congratulations because you expect that of them. It's still a good thing, but you expect them to do it. And the other thing that I, I think is when you say you're an inspiration, that tells me that you're going to do absolutely nothing about the structural barriers we face. There's a reason why there's not as many disabled people like in higher education as there should be. So don't tell me you think I'm an inspiration. You're putting all the onus back on me to overcome ableism in society rather than the onus on you to fix it. So I've had some people say that they think it's it's fine to use this word if you aren't using it for everyday things. So someone's won an award for being best in their field and they happen to have a disability, go ahead and use the word. Or someone published their first novel while juggling work and being a single parent. But Jay's been too jaded by this word. Gotta be honest with you, I think it's always an insult. I've never had the experience where it's been said as a nice thing. So before you drop the big I word, you better ask yourself, is the reason I'm saying this just because the person has a disability? If so, it's probably more patronizing than a compliment. Now to a different but equally troubling use of the word inspiration. Have you seen those little inspirational disability memes and puff pieces that make the rounds on social media? Like a young boy with prosthetic legs running with the caption, what's your excuse? Or the only disability is a bad attitude. Or one I've seen recently is a photo of a dad who's pushing his child who's in a wheelchair. And the caption said something like, now there's a real father. In the disability community, there's a term for this type of content. It's known as inspiration porn. So I hate the inspiration porn. They're objectifying someone. It's about making able-bodied people feel good, not about making us feel seen or authentically representing our lives as they should be. I also think it takes away the normalcy of what someone is doing. So the one with the father and pushing their disabled child, he should be doing that. If he wasn't doing that, that would be weird. He's helping his child get around. That's that's not good. It should be standard. Another one, you see like little kids and they're playing with a disabled person and people talk about how, you know, oh, such good, such good children. But it should be seen as that's not good to play with someone else. It's, it should be standard. They're playing with a friend. Like all that is doing is, is making is making A, the able-bodied person feel good because they've done something out of the ordinary, which it shouldn't be, and B, they've, they've also made a disabled person feel bad because they say, I must be a burden. I must be harder to play with. And this stuff, it's not just hurtful. 
it can cause a ripple effect of harm. For example, there have been multiple viral videos on social media that show a guy without disability, or I should say without a visible disability, taking a girl who has a visible disability to prom. And the captions on these videos, as well as all the comments, are always like, what a great guy. That's where it becomes harmful, because if you say the language, if you say the language enough and enough times, then we believe it too. So, like, if you're saying, oh, well, isn't it nice that this able-bodied boy's gone to prom with this girl who has a disability? So, that's fine until you get into a relationship and a partner says, you shouldn't leave because I'm the only one who will love you. And then abuse starts to happen. But then they don't leave because they've been told their whole life that there has to be someone super special who will love you and it could be only this person. And, you know, you've won the lottery because they're an able-bodied person. So that's where it becomes harmful. Another thing Jay told me that people commonly say to her after hanging out for a while is, I don't even see your disability. That, to me, says there's this bad thing about you and I don't see it. Or I see you as a normal person, but that's implying that you don't think disabled people are normal people. (laughs) I want you to see my disability. I need you to see it. My disability is entwined with who I am, whether that be negative, for example, the discrimination I experience and the internalized ableism, or whether that be positive. If I didn't have a disability, I wouldn't be in the field that I am now. I wouldn't work with diverse communities. I wouldn't be as empathetic as I am. I'm much better at problem solving because I have a disability. I have all these good qualities because of a disability. And so when you try and separate those two things out by saying we're going to take this thing that we consider to be bad, we're going to pretend it doesn't exist, to me that's offensive because you're not seeing the whole, you're not seeing me. You're pretending that I'm able-bodied because for you that's easier to deal with than seeing a person with a disability who has a distinct life experience and they're robbing me and other people of a community. They're saying, you can't be proud of your disability. You can't be part of that community, even though community is so important for marginalized people. Okay. I'm going to make a full disclosure here. When Jay said this, I cringed because I've said that sentence to somebody. It was the first time I'd really hung out with somebody who lives with significant disability. And he was really funny. And I remember after this big old belly laugh together, I turned to him and I uttered those words. I don't even see your disability. This was years ago. But I still remember it clearly because he got really quiet and I remember it felt super awkward, but I wasn't really sure why. And then he just changed the subject and all seemed okay. We never talked about it. But reflecting back on that moment now, oh, I realize what an ignorant thing I was saying because I would never say to somebody from, you know, a different country or a different ethnic background, I don't even see your ethnicity or your culture because that's just so clearly offensive. Culture and history matter. And who would I be to wash that away with my words like it's a bad thing? 
And yet that's what that phrase, I don't even see your disability is doing. So I'm sorry that I've said it and I will never say it again. Now, the reason that I'm telling you all this is because you may make a mistake sometime. Never let that stop you from trying to connect with other people who have different experiences and backgrounds to yourself, whether that be disability or ethnicity or whatever. It is okay to make mistakes. It's what comes after that matters the most. The hard bit comes in you saying, I'm sorry that I did that, or I won't do that again. Because the frustration that I feel is not from people saying the wrong thing, it's from people not caring when I tell them I need them to do something differently. That's when I feel the most disrespected. That story was produced by Carrie Shear. A longer version of this story originally appeared on the Purple Orange podcast. You can listen to the full story and others like it at purpleorange.org.au. All the best would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we make these stories and pay our respects to elders past, present and future. All the best is made at FBI Radio on Gadigal land in association with SIN and 3RRR on Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Boonarung lands and 8CCC on Arunda and Warramungu lands. Our editorial manager is Mel Chun, and our production manager is Danny Stewart. Matilda Fay and Emma Fan are our social media producers. Our web producer is Connor Hughes, and Lydia Yosifova is our community and events coordinator. Shining Bird composed our theme music, and Annie Hamilton designed the artwork. We're heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network and we're made possible by the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find out more at cbf.org.au. You can find more episodes by searching for All Best wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Helena Baroni-Peters. Thanks for listening.